Please remain standing for the reading of the word. This morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, so please follow with me. Um, The words will be on the screen, and if you have your Bibles available. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through time we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Wade. Howdy. This is obviously uh, not College Station. If this was College Station, everybody in the room would have yelled out howdy whenever I say howdy. That's the official greeting of uh, Texas A&M. So I don't know how many of you went to a school that has an official greeting, uh, but my alma mater does. And uh, in fact... This has become such a, uh, a, a catalyzing sort of part of uh, A&M tradition uh, that there are all these rules that are associated with the howdies. And so there, there is this sort of idea, if you are a guy and you're walking and you see an attractive girl on campus and you think, I would like to get to know her, you say howdy to her. And uh, if she says anything other than howdy back to you, you're in. You know, you can ask her out on a date, and she is ready to go, and you guys are going to get married. Uh, this is just one of the weird traditions uh, that AM has. AM has a host of strange traditions that you learn over time there. And so if you've ever been to a football game, you might note uh, that Aggies never sit during the football game except when the opposing team's band is on the field. The entire rest of the football game, we are standing there which is typically really, really hot because this is Texas. And, uh, and so you're standing there in the middle of the heat, in the middle of the day, during the entire game. In addition to this, you have this weird sort of thing where anytime the football team scores, you're supposed to kiss your date. Whether you've known your date for a long time or not, it doesn't matter. They could even be a stranger. If it's just a girl next to you, you kiss her anytime the team scores. We don't have cheerleaders, we have yell leaders. And there's this weird thing that we do whenever we do the yells that the yell leaders are leading us in, we bow down like this. We kind of have our hands clasped together, we're bowing down like this, and we're like chanting rhythmically, following the lead of these guys who are dressed in all white. It is very, very cultic. (laughs) And I love it. That's my school. There are a number of traditions on the other hand, that have rich history and that aren't quite so silly. So some of the ones that I just mentioned are fairly silly. I had a friend who came and visited me one time, and uh, and her example, after being there for a little bit, her example of how silly and how stupid are the traditions at A&M was that she got yelled at for walking on the grass. Uh, Until I explained to her, well, the particular section of grass that you're walking on is in front of the Memorial Student Center. And because A&M used to be a, uh, a military school, this particular section is a memorial to fallen Aggies who have died in warfare and so forth. And she felt dumb. After that, it's kind of like saying, oh, you don't want to let me play freeze tag in a cemetery or something like that. So this is one of those uh, things that Aggies do that's part of the rich history there that, uh, that's not silly. We have things like muster, which is uh, an annual event where uh, every Aggie... Uh, uh, past or present, 
who has uh, died in the past year, they read out the name. And, uh, and so there's this camaraderie and so forth. They do the same thing with a thing called silver taps. Uh, and any students who have died in the past month or so, uh, they read out their name and everyone is there. And there's this moment where we recognize, I might not have known this person. There's 50,000 students here. But in some sense, we, we share this common uh, bond. Uh, and so Aggies have this weird way of kind of self-identifying uh, themselves. And, uh, and, and in fact, there are two categories. There are true Aggies, and then there's what's called two percenters. Two percenters kind of participate in kind of two percent of the life and the culture and so forth of A&M. Uh, and so I was much more of a true Aggie, quote unquote. Uh, I did kind of everything. I participated in all the football games, all that kind of stuff. My wife, on the other hand, was like a half percenter. All right, not even a two percenter. We added up all of the individual quarters of football that she intended in her four-year collegiate career, uh, and it was just over one game. So she actually made it to one game, but it was over the span of four years, all broken up and, uh, and so forth. And I think one of the reasons uh, that uh, she is a half percenter, A, it's because, honestly, she is uh, less weak-willed than I am. Uh, and, uh, and so less impressionable whenever she was uh, just coming in. But another reason is she didn't go to one of the orientation camps. Uh, and so whether you are a freshman or a transfer student going into A&M, they highly encourage you to go to these orientation camps where you can learn the rich tradition uh, and, uh, and you can kind of experience this sense of uh, camaraderie. And so I did that whenever I was going into A&M. I went to the orientation camp learned all of the, 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 almost the chants, that's basically what they are, learned all of the yells, uh, learned all of the traditions, uh, all of those sorts of things, and I emerged in Aggie. I came out with this sort of new appreciation and this new identity. What we've been talking about in Ephesians is this concept of us having a new identity. That's what Ephesians is, in a sense. It's, it's an orientation camp for us, or maybe a reorientation uh, for us. Uh, Tim Keller talks about it like this, that what the gospel does is it, it's a reshuffling of our identity deck. That's what we've been talking about in Ephesians over the past couple of weeks. Last week, we saw it in regards to this new uh, uh, vertical identity that we have that no longer uh, are we, or the past couple of weeks, no longer are we dead in our trespasses and sins. We have been brought to new life. And this week we'll see some of the horizontal dimensions of that as well. As we have been uh, given peace with God, so we've been given peace with our fellow men. And so before we get into that, let's spend a moment in prayer together. First, I'd ask that you just uh, take a moment and pray for yourself. That if you're distracted, maybe you're hungry, maybe you're uh, worried about something that's coming up, maybe you're uh, just uh, here out of duty or something like that, that you would just ask the Lord to break down that wall and to keep you from that distraction and allow you just for the next hour or so to be engaged in the consideration of his word. And then pray that for someone next to you, that the Lord would help us collectively to understand and appreciate what he's saying. And then lastly, would you pray for me? I'm a broken vessel. Would you ask the Lord to speak through me in spite of my inadequacies and insufficiencies and weaknesses? So, Father, would you do what you desire to do, which is to meet with your people uh, this morning, Lord? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, that the gospel, the renown, the glory of your Son would be seen and known and enjoyed among us this morning. We ask because you're a good father. You give good gifts, so would you give us this gift, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll be in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Let me read verses 11 through 13 for you. Ephesians 2, 11 to 13, I encourage you to follow along. It'll be on the screen behind me or uh, in your Bible on your lap. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So to to begin, we really need to understand the historical context here that exists in uh, relation to Jew and Gentile relations within uh, the early church. In the first century, Jews hated Gentiles, and the feeling was absolutely reciprocated. Uh, Jews hated Gentiles, Gentiles hated uh, Jews, uh, Gentiles hated Jews uh, for a number of reasons. A, because they viewed them as uncultured. Uh, for, a, uh, for a Greek in particular, for someone who is uh, uh, kind of immersed in the, the ancient Greek culture, uh, such as a Roman citizen, anybody who was not uh, a Roman citizen would have been uncultured. They would have been a barbarian. And so that was one of the reasons that Gentiles hated Jews. They viewed them as, as being uncultured, as being illiterate, kind of backwoods, bigots, and so forth. They viewed them as being intolerant. After all, Judaism claims to be the one way, uh, the one way to Yahweh, the one way to life and uh, these sorts of things. So they viewed them as being exclusivistic and intolerant and bigoted and all of these sorts of uh, ideas. Uh, Whereas Jews hated Gentiles because of a, a deep history of oppression at the hands of Gentiles. So if you uh, didn't get a chance to sit through our intertestamental history teaching from theological equipping class last semester. I'd highly encourage you to do that if you're not familiar with this context. Uh, within the span of just a couple of hundred years prior to when Paul is writing this, uh, various times Gentiles had entered into the Jewish temple and had defiled it. <laughs> And uh, in addition to this, they had carried out these, these vast massacres of Jews throughout, uh, throughout Judea and, uh, uh, and Galilee and so forth. And so uh, Gentiles hated Jews and Jews hated Gentiles. When you think of this sort of ethnic prejudice, I don't want you to think of modern racism, right? So uh, racial relations and so forth in the U.S. is... Uh, constantly in our news these days. Don't think of that. Take that image out of your mind. That is not what's going on with Jew-Gentile relations. Instead, I want you to think about uh, 19th century antebellum racism. I want you to think of the racism that existed within, uh, the, uh, within the United States 150 years ago or something like that. That is a more appropriate analogy for what we're talking about with Jew-Gentile Relationships, And yet, imagine with all of this context, Jews and Gentiles are being immersed into the same church together and being asked to worship together, to gather together, to eat together, to pray together, to sing together, to be a part of each other's lives, to encourage each other, and on and on. Gentiles called Jews... The circumcision, which I think is tied for the worst nickname ever to be given, along with what the Jews call the Gentiles, which is the uncircumcision. So apparently this sort of practice of giving derogatory nicknames on the basis of uh, ethnicity or racial uh, identity or whatever it is, is not some sort of new phenomenon. This was very common uh, within the ancient uh, world, and it becomes this sort of derogatory litmus test for Jews or Gentiles, and you become classified either as circumcised or uncircumcised within the empire. And I think it's really interesting at this point that Paul is going to take a little bit of a jab, a subtle little theological jab at circumcision. He is about to kind of drop the hammer on Gentiles and talk about all of their deficiencies, all of their weaknesses. But before he does that, he takes this little jab at his own people, his own tradition. He says this about circumcision. First, that circumcision is done in the flesh. You see that there in the text. Circumcision was in the flesh. If you're reading the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah, it, it speaks, uh, they both speak of physical circumcision as being a sign, a symbol. The importance of the sign or the symbol is not the sign itself. In other words, the purpose of what you do when you go by a stop sign is not admire, oh man, that is a beautiful octagon. That is a beautiful color of red and the contrasting white, and you blow right by it. 
right? The purpose of the stop sign is so that you might stop. What matters is not the symbol, it's what you do with the symbol. In the same way, uh, you'll find throughout the Old Testament these sort of hints uh, that circumcision itself is not what matters. It's a sign, it's a symbol for a deeper reality that's not done in uh, the flesh. The circumcision of the heart is what's uh, truly important. That circumcision is this physical sign of a deeper spiritual reality, and therefore circumcision of the flesh counts for nothing. That's why Paul will write things like Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. I think we have it and put it up there. He'll say things like this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. It's not an outward physical thing having to do with the flesh. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the first thing that he says is what matters is not circumcision of the flesh. What really matters is circumcision of the heart. The second thing he says there about circumcision is the phrase made by hands. Made by hands. Uh, Although made and by hands in our English text is separated uh, there, uh, in, uh, in Greek it's actually just one word. Made by hands is just one word. And that word has a rich biblical history. When we think of something as being man-made, typically if I use the the word man-made, I'm typically using that in a context that's positive by and large. I might be talking about how uh, the Great Wall of China is man-made or the pyramids of Egypt are man-made or something like that. By and large, we use this phrase as something that is positive. But in the Bible, the overwhelming majority of the usage is not positive at all. It is profoundly negative. Biblically, for something to be man-made throughout the prophetic literature and so forth, is often going to refer to something like idols. That what you're doing in making an idol, you're cutting down a tree, and then you're using your hands to form and to fashion an idol. That's what something is man-made is, is an idol. In light of this, in light of these sort of uh, two jabs that Paul takes, we can conclude that what, Paul, what God is concerned with is not circumcision of the flesh that's made by hands. He is concerned with the circumcision of the Spirit that is done by the Spirit of God. That's why in a parallel text, Colossians chapter 2 Paul says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And as he wrote in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, we talked about this, the importance of remembering. Remember who you were. Remember that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So now he talks about remembering as well, and in particular for the Gentiles, there are these five weaknesses, these five characteristics, these five deficiencies that he wants to make sure that, that the Gentiles are remembering that they're separated, they're alienated, they're strangers, they're without hope and without God. In other words, things could not be worse. If you were a Gentile, you were not in covenant with Yahweh, you were alienated, you were separated, you were cut off. And as a result, you had no hope or relationship with God. But then he says this. He says, but now, which should remind us of that uh, 2, chapter 2, verse 4, but God, this former condition has been superseded by God's grace. Those of us who were far off have been brought near by the sacrificial blood of Christ, which we find not only binds us to the Father, but to each other as well. So all of this Paul writes for the sake of remembering, remember who you were. In verse 10, he just read, and and, uh, Zach ended on this in his sermon last week, he's just written about us being recreated in Christ for good works. Not that by doing good works we enter into relationship with God, but because we've entered into relationship with God, therefore we've been recreated into a life of good works. So he's just uh, given us this But I think in some sense, what is important for us to recognize is that our good works, our doing of good works is in some sense dependent upon our ability to remember. Uh, 
Let me give you a little bit of an illustration. Next weekend is going to be my daughter's uh, first birthday. Little Larkin will be one year old uh, next uh, weekend. So let me have you do a kind of a thought experiment. None of us in this room have ever done this. Absolutely. No one here has ever forgotten someone important to them's birthday. I know we're not those kind of people, but we know the kind of people who might do that. So imagine, if you will, I forget Larkin's birthday. Or I forget Casey's birthday. Or I forget our anniversary or something like that. Are my good works toward them going to suffer as a result? Absolutely. I have forgotten that it's their birthday. So I'm not buying them gifts. I'm not speaking a word of encouragement. I'm not taking them out to dinner. I'm not writing them a card, whatever it might be. In some sense, our remembering is going to be the catalyst that compels us into these good works in remembering this reason for celebrating, I am then compelled to enter into that celebration. That's what Paul's talking about here. So Paul's concerned lest we forget who we were. And as a result, our kind of worship uh, hits a ceiling. We've talked about this before, that our theology, how we understand who we are and who God is, is always a ceiling for us. Our affections, our emotions, our desires, our worship can never rise beyond that uh, ceiling. And so he's concerned that our ceiling goes higher as we recognize just how great and glorious God is and just how little and menial we were, not only as humans in general, but Gentiles in uh, particular, given that uh, the Ephesian church was probably predominantly Gentile by this time. You see, before Christ, under the Mosaic uh, covenant, to be a Gentile meant that you were necessarily restricted from the covenant community. In order to be saved, to be welcomed into relationship with Yahweh, you basically had to become Jewish. If you were a male, you had to be circumcised. Regardless, you had to participate in the various feasts and festivals. You had to obey the law, etc. So now Paul is writing to these Gentiles who have been uh, bound into, they've been grafted into relationship with Yahweh. And the question then naturally comes, is that Old Testament pattern and principle that in order to be united to Yahweh, you must become Jewish? Is that still binding? That's what the next section is going to talk about. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love the way this begins. Not only does Jesus bring peace, it says that he is our peace. This kind of mirrors other statements that you'll read throughout the Bible that Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our wisdom. Likewise, Jesus is our peace. This is not just something that he brings. This is something that he is. And if we're united to him, then we are united to this concept. Jesus doesn't just bring good news. He himself is the good news. We'll see that as we move through the text. And what has he done? He said he's made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul here is is speaking of Jews and Gentiles, and he says that they have been made one as this sort of dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. So what in the world does that mean? What wall are we talking about? Well, there's two different ways, complementary ways to understand what Paul is writing about here. First one, there is this physical wall of about four and a half feet that existed within uh, the uh, first century temple, right? There were a number of actually uh, partitions that existed within the temple that you might be familiar with. Uh, You're familiar with the uh, veil that separated the Holy of Holies uh, from the holy place. There was also a partition that separated that from the court of the priests. There's also a partition that separates priests from uh, Jewish men in general. There's also uh, a section from Jewish men to separate from Jewish women. And then beyond all of that, there's a court of the Gentiles, right? And between the, uh, the Jewish and Gentile sections of the temple, there is this four and a half foot partition that exists there as a sign 
of our separation uh, between them. In, in fact, uh, in Jerusalem today, there is this, this little section uh, of the, uh, the Temple Mount that still exists. So a little section of the area that would have been around in Jesus' day still stands today. That's called the Wailing Wall. You've probably heard of it. In fact, you can log on on the computer and you can actually have a view of the Wailing Wall uh, today. And this is kind of the most sacred site uh, for Orthodox Jews uh, today. And uh, it's a place that they gather to, uh, to pray and to hope and, uh, and so forth. And if you go there today, there's actually separation today between where the men can gather and where the women can gather. Uh, in my first trip to Israel, uh, I was a little bit uh, cocky and uh, overly confident in my ability to read Hebrew, which is pretty minimal, but I had taken two semesters of Hebrew, and so I thought, what the heck? And, uh, and so I accidentally went to the women's section, which meant I got a whole lot of really, really strange looks. If you are a Gentile in the first century and you go into the Jewish area, you don't get strange looks. You get killed. In fact, there is a sign uh, that they have found th- that, uh, that existed with, on, on that wall that basically said, Gentiles, by crossing this, you take your life into your own hands. There is this divide that exists between Jew and Gentile, this physical uh, divide. But what he's speaking of here is not that that physically fell down. It's that that as a sign has metaphorically fallen down. There is something that is a metaphorical sign of the division between Jew and Gentile, and that is the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is that which kind of signifies and ratifies this division between Jew and Gentile. You see, many of the various provisions of the Mosaic law, like circumcision, like the wearing of certain clothing and that kind of stuff, many of those provisions were given explicitly to distinguish Israel from the other nations. We'll throw Leviticus 20 up there. You shall be holy to me, for I, am, uh, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A number of the laws were given explicitly for this purpose in order to distinguish Israel from the other nations to drive and create this wall, this partition between Jew and Gentile. So the Mosaic law, in a sense, forms this fence or wall for Israel to keep them from being polluted by the various nations. Gentiles could enter in to some degree, but only if, in a sense, they're renouncing their Gentileness and they're embracing Judaism only by becoming Jewish. What Paul's saying is in Christ, that wall has fallen. No longer must you, in order to be united to Yahweh, no longer must you be united the Mosaic law, no longer must you be united to Judaism. Instead, you have to be united to Jesus. In order to be united to Yahweh, in order to be united to God, you don't have to be united to Judaism. You have to be united to the true Jew, the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. And that statement that he makes here about abolishing the law of commandments is, I think, fascinating when you think about it. You might have heard before, uh, there is this uh, attempt to systematize the law and to break it up into various constituents and to say uh, there are basically three aspects of the law. There's a moral aspect of the law, there's a ceremonial aspect of the law, and there's a civil aspect of the law. And that in Christ, what happens is the uh, ceremonial and civil aspects of the law have gone away, but the mosaic, or, or the moral aspects of the mosaic law have remained. For a couple of reasons, I don't think that is the most helpful or biblical way to think about what actually happens uh, here. Let me give you those reasons. First, such a distinction doesn't come from Scripture itself. In fact, Scripture is going to talk about the law as if it is something that is absolutely inseparable, something that if you pull one little thread, the entire thing unravels. That's why James will say in chapter 2, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. In other words, the law is not intended to be seen as 630-something commands. It's intended to be seen as one unit. So you can't just break it down into constituent parts. Another reason I don't think that that's the most helpful way to think about it is because oftentimes 
There is no logical way for us to determine would something be moral or ceremonial or civil. So let me ask you this question. If you're thinking about the Sabbath, Old Testament Sabbath regulations and the Mosaic law, is the Sabbath something that is a moral command, a ceremonial command, or a civil command? You'd have to say in some sense it's all of the above. There's a moral aspect of it. In fact, as Zach was talking about, if you don't Sabbath, God will kill you. But there's also a civil aspect. How does God kill you? He kills you by the covenant community uh, stoning you to death. But there's also a ceremonial aspect to it because there are certain ceremonial rites and rituals and and so forth that you have to go through uh, for participation on the Sabbath. So there's aspects in which it would be all of the above. So if we are to, uh, to say that God does away with the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law, but not the moral aspects of the law, we're going to have trouble because those are all intertwined and intentionally so, so that we would see the Mosaic law as one unit. I think a better way of reading that, a less simplistic way of reading uh, that is to understand that Christ has abolished the entire law. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is why Jesus can say things like, all foods are clean. This is why uh, Paul will later write and say, Uh, One person esteems one day and another person esteems another day. In the Old Testament, you didn't have the opportunity of saying, my Sabbath is going to be on a Sunday or a Monday or a Tuesday. No, your Sabbath is on the day that God has determined it to be. But if that's what I'm saying, if I'm saying that Christ has abolished the entire law, does that mean that there's no longer any sort of morally binding commands? Of course not. If the entire Mosaic law is fulfilled, does that mean that I'm free to just do whatever I want? So you're saying part of the Mosaic law is the Ten Commandments, so therefore, if the Mosaic law is no longer in effect, I can commit adultery and I can murder and all these sorts of things. No, but the reason is not because we're still under Mosaic law, but because we're under the law of Christ. And the law of Christ commands us to love our neighbor and to love God. And if I love God and I love my neighbor, I'm not going to cheat on my wife. Because I love her too much, and I love my neighbor's wife, or husband too much, or whatever it might be, or wife. (laughs) And I love my neighbor too much to kill him. See, we're under a new law. We've talked about this analogy before. We've used this illustration before. Suppose I'm driving uh, north, heading to Oklahoma for who knows why I would ever go there. Uh, But I'm going up to Oklahoma, and the speed limit's 70, right? And I'm driving 70. I like to go the speed limit. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm driving 70 miles per hour, and then I cross over into Oklahoma, and the speed limit, there's a sign there, and it says 70, and I continue driving 70, right? The, the, what I'm doing hasn't changed. I'm still driving 70 miles per hour, but the reason I'm doing it is different. I'm no longer under Texas law when I'm in Oklahoma. I'm under Oklahoma law, which I can only assume is like frontier justice or something, Right? <laughs> So I am still doing the same thing, but I'm under a different dispensation. I'm under a different law. Likewise, there are aspects of what is commanded of us in the Old Covenant and things that are commanded of us in the New Testament uh, that are similar, but our reasons are different. I'm no longer under the Mosaic Law. I'm no longer under the ceremonial, civil, or moral aspects of the Mosaic Law. Instead, I'm under the law of Christ which is, in in Jesus' view, actually a much higher standard uh, for me. So to sum up what Paul's talking about here, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down because the Mosaic law and the fence that it builds between Jew and Gentile is no longer the means (coughs) by which people enter into covenant with Yahweh. Therefore, there should be no reason for this Jewish-Gentile division within the church, that which formerly divided them no longer divides them. Like when the Berlin Wall fell after 28 years and East and West are reconciled there in Berlin. Before uh, moving up to Dallas, my uh, brother and sister-in-law, uh, my brother's not here today, he had some bad chewies, which I think is like a logical inconsistency like Zach was talking about earlier, bad chewies, that doesn't make sense. 
but he's not here today. But before they moved up to Dallas, uh, they built a house uh, in Houston. Uh, we're living in the house. The house immediately next door to them uh, opened up, uh, and it was for sale. And so uh, my sister-in-law's parents uh, moved in, bought that house, moved in. It's kind of like everybody loves Raymond. And uh, one of the first things that they did whenever they moved into this house is they tore down the fence. They tore down the fence that separated their yard uh, from uh, uh, my sister-in-law's parents' uh, yard. As a result, my niece and nephew all of a sudden had kind of mega yard, kind of the one yard to rule them all, right? And they had free roam. They had free access. And in their mind, they're not thinking our backyard versus uh, our grandparents' backyard. They're going over and, and, and walking into their grandparents' house whenever they want. They're going swimming in their grandparents' pool whenever they want. That is just one now common yard. It's kind of an illustration of what has happened for us. There's no longer our yard versus their yard. There's no longer Jewish yard and Gentile yard. There is just one yard. By abolishing the law of commands and ordinances and breaking down the wall of hostility, God has created one new man in place of the two talk a little bit uh, for a second about uh, something that is uh, historical theology. Uh, There is this stream of thought within evangelicalism uh, called dispensationalism. And within this sort of stream of thought, perhaps you've heard of it, perhaps not. I don't care uh, if you are familiar with the term or not. It doesn't matter all that much. It's actually the the kind of the the way of thinking, the school of thought uh, of the school where both Jerry and I uh, did our uh, seminary uh, training and so forth. Uh, but both of us would critique it, uh, particularly in one of the excesses. And so in classical dispensational thought, there is this very, very, very strong distinction between Israel and the church. In particular, uh, you have those who would hold to this view uh, that in eternity uh, future, uh, into uh, all of, of uh, our eternal state, that the church will be a spiritual body in heaven, Israel will be a physical people on earth, and there the two shall meet. Does that make sense? That the church, us, will be in heaven, Israel will be on the earth, and never the two shall meet. What does Paul say, though? Paul says, not, you have both been reconciled to God, but not to each other. No, he said, in place of the two, there is now one. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's just Christian and unchristian. Those are now the two categories the Bible holds for us. That if, uh, if circumcision made in the flesh by hands doesn't matter, and if the Mosaic law has been replaced by a new covenant, And if that which divided Jews and Gentiles have been broken down, there's only one way to the Father. There's only one way to peace that God has created one new man in place of the two and reconciled us in one body. So if someone were to ask you today, who are the people of God in light of the New Testament, you you would answer the question by saying those who have been united to Jesus Christ. We don't answer on the basis of ethnicity, but election on the basis of biological descent, but on the basis of your belief. It's not a physical family. It's a spiritual uh, family, which is why the primary way that the church grows is not through procreation. So we're celebrating uh, today the birth of a Martin baby and a Sproul baby. But that's not the primary way that we hope that Parkway is going to grow. The primary way that the church grows, the primary way the kingdom expands is not through procreation, as opposed to like uh, Islam and Judaism and so forth, the primary way that the church grows is not through procreation, but proclamation of the word. There's this missional aspect. Look in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Another quick story about my uh, brother. Uh, He and uh, Leah were uh, married in her childhood home, uh, which was right on the bay, right outside of uh, my hometown of Baytown. 
And, uh, and so they wanted to get married under this gazebo. They had a beautiful gazebo there in their yard. Uh, but the problem was it was right next to this swimming pool. They had a swimming pool, then they had a gazebo. And so the only way that we could really use, utilize that gazebo in the wedding ceremony would be somehow uh, to come over uh, the uh, swimming pool. And so uh, Leah's uh, dad uh, decided, you know what? He's an Aggie, Brad's an Aggie, Jeff's an Aggie, we can put this together. Now, he has an engineering doctorate degree, I've got a business degree, and uh, my brother has a psychology degree. So I think he kind of overestimated our kind of collective Aggie capability or whatever. It might be an engineering school, but uh, we're not engineers. Uh, but somehow, we managed to, to do this thing. So we spent uh, all day in the pool with wood and fiberglass and so forth. I contributed basically just getting the sunburn. That was my sort of major contribution. I just got sunburned for the wedding ceremony, which was really helpful. Uh, but by the end, we had this uh, really beautiful, uh, because Leah's dad's competent, uh, fiberglass bridge uh, that kind of went up a little bit and then over and then down. Uh, and so the entire wedding party to get to uh, the ceremony went over that as part of the uh, the ceremony. So it was this really uh, beautiful sort of thing, this illustration. Likewise, there is this something that separates us. There's sin, there's hostility that separates us from access to the Father. That's what he's talking about here in this passage, uh, that our desire is access to the Father, for through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. There is something that prevents us from having access and what's happened is that the apostles and the prophets have laid a foundation, a cornerstone, like we built that bridge so that we might have access to the Father. John Piper has written before that the greatest good of the gospel is that you get God. That's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is access to the Father. The greatest good is that you get God, not just that you get out of hell. Getting out of hell is a good thing, because as opposed to hell, you get the new earth, which is where Jesus is. That's the reason that eternity is good, because you're spending it with Jesus, and he is the source of all good and joy. And so it says that we have access to God, but not only that, that we're also being formed into this dwelling place for him by the Spirit. Notice, if you will, there's this progressive element, being formed, being joined Together, there's this progressive aspect to what God is doing and building the church into a temple. We're being joined together and built together and growing together. In some sense, that's what's happening among us every week and every weekend. It's what's happening in theological equipping classes. It's what's happening whenever we gather together in here. It's what's happening whenever we're listening to a sermon, when we're taking communion, when we're encouraging each other, when we're waiting around and lingering after services. We're being joined together. We're being built together into a dwelling place for God. That's why division and disunity are so dangerous. That's why Paul doesn't just wait and kind of attach this at the end of his book, as if this is some sort of peripheral thing. In essence, what's going on, pride and, and preference and privilege and disunity and division and these sorts of things are, are kind of like playing cosmic Jenga just daring the body to fall apart, and thus daring for there to be no holy dwelling place uh, for God. That's one of the reasons that this text is so critical for us to understand, but there's another reason as well. Uh, we're nearly 2,000 years removed from the writing of this text, and our context is vastly different, right? So there might be some people in this room that have Jewish ancestry or whatever it might be. Maybe you took one of those DNA tests and it says that you have, you know, 5% or whatever it might be. But the overwhelming majority of us in this room, we're not Jewish. So we don't really have a whole lot of Jew-Gentile division uh, within the church. So what does this have to do with us and what does it have to do with the gospel? Earlier, we saw that Jesus makes peace that he is peace, and now here in this text we see that he proclaims peace. This is a fulfillment, by the way, of a lot of uh, Old Testament passages. Isaiah 57, 18 through 19, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him, I will lead him and restore comfort to him 
and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Or Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who makes, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There's this missional aspect of this passage that I think is often overlooked. If someone were to ask you, where is the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2, you'd probably look somewhere right in the heart, verses 1 through 10. What I want you to see today is that it also exists right at the heart of 11 through 22 uh, as well. Do you remember the story of when Paul rebukes Peter at Antioch? Do you remember that story? There's this story where Paul goes and he rebukes Peter and he says, you stand condemned because you have denied the gospel. What has Peter done in that moment? Had Peter come and said, I deny justification by faith? No. Had he said, I deny penal substitutionary atonement? No. Had he said, I deny that Jesus rose from the dead? No. I deny that Jesus died for our sins? No. So what had he denied? What had he done? Peter had stopped eating with Gentiles. And Paul says, that's a denial of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is this message that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Not only is there this vertical dimension, but a horizontal dimension as well. You have rebuilt what Christ died to tear down. It's why Paul will write uh, that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. The death of Christ was preached to Abraham? No. The resurrection of Christ was preached to Abraham? No. What was preached to Abraham? Well, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. For Paul, the inclusion of the nations into God's people is not just a peripheral consequence of the gospel. It's a part and parcel of the gospel. That's why Jesus is passionate about his temple being a house of prayer for all the nations. And on and on we could go of all of these examples of this horizontal dimension of the gospel. The human heart, you see, it has this tendency to build up walls Walls of race, of ethnicity, of gender, of socioeconomic status, of whatever it might be. Fill in the blank. You know your heart better than I do. We all have this sort of tendency to build these walls. And what we see here is all of these walls have been broken down. All of these walls that, should, uh, that would divide us within Christ's body have been broken down. And there's no longer any walls within this dwelling place of God. This sort of horizontal reconciliation is a part of the gospel because the gospel is the story of a kingdom. We talk about this all the time. The story of a kingdom. When we talk about a kingdom, we're talking about God's reign. In some sense, God reigns over all things uh, in all ways, even now. But there's another sense in which right now his, his, his reign, there's an obstacle to it. There is uh, at least opposition to it in sin, but imagine a world in which there is no obstacle, in which God's reign is completely and utterly in, unencumbered. That's the consummation of the kingdom that we're waiting for. And in that day, there's no division. There's no disunity amongst his body. There's no racism. There's no pride or arrogance or whatever it might be. There's peace, there's harmony, there's unity. There's love. There's not ethnocentrism or discrimination or bigotry. And so when King Jesus comes, he makes peace and he is peace and he proclaims peace not only with God but with our fellow man. And therefore we, as his body, have not only the responsibility but the opportunity to be agents for peace, seeking reconciliation with our neighbors, with the nations. You don't have to go to Romania like we are in a couple of weeks in order to do this. You have an opportunity to do that as the nations come here. As a number of the people moving into the area are from uh, other nations or of other uh, ethnic categories or whatever it might uh, be. The gospel is not only about your relationship with God, but also with your fellow man. So let me ask you just a question. 
when you hear that, when you hear that horizontal aspect of the gospel, is that to you good news? Like, is that exciting? Does that sound like a delight to you? Or are you like Jonah? You're antagonistic. Remember the story of Jonah? He's angry that God would show grace to others. Those Gentiles, those Ninevites, how dare you show grace to them? For the vast majority of us, I don't think that our racism or ethnocentrism or pride in socioeconomic status or whatever it might be, for the vast majority of us, it's not like that. It's not that uh, open and overt. Instead, maybe it's more apathy. You're just apathetic. Apathetic towards your neighbors, toward the nations, whatever it might be. And so before I pray and before we take communion together, I just want to give you a second to do business with the Lord and just ask Him. In this next couple of seconds, just as I give a little bit of time for just contemplation, just ask the Lord to expose in you whatever sort of apathy you might have, whatever sort of anger you might have, any sort of division or disunity that you might be clinging to, ask yourself this question, where are you rebuilding walls that Christ died to tear down? I'll pray for us, and as I do, if the men would come forward for communion. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that you have made a way for us who are Gentiles to be reconciled to you and to your body, that we don't have to become Jewish. We have to become Christian, to be united to your son. I thank you that you've done away with the Mosaic law and all of its uh, burdensome requirements, that we might simply exercise faith in your son and rest in your provision uh, for us. I confess that my own heart is quick to build up walls. My own heart is quick to cling to certain characteristics that I think are more holy or right or whatever it might be. And so I pray that you would expose them and grant me repentance. And I pray that for us as a body, that more and more we might experience the depth of unity that is reflection of the kingdom of your son in which there is no disunity, no division. There's nothing but peace and harmony and love. And so help us, make us into that people, Lord. Form us into that image. We ask these things because we know that you're good and you do good. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.